0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my conversation is with Mary Griffith, the John C. Danforth Distinguished Professor at Washington University in St. Louis, where she directs the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. From a recent book, Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics, published by Basic Books, is the topic of this show. Griffith provides a portrait of how religious views regarding sexuality became entangled with multiple political debates, including those over feminism, gay rights, sex education, and in charges of communism and secular humanism. Beginning with the controversies over birth control in the 1920s, she takes us through the 20th century to the most recent battles over same-sex marriage dividing American Christians, both politically and religiously. Moral combat features pivotal figures, including birth control advocate Margaret Sanger, the fundamentalist radio preacher Billy James Hargis, and the first gay Episcopal bishop, Gene Robinson. She demonstrates how pro and con positions were not always clearly defined, and adherents could change sides in a matter of a decade, finding surprising allies. In the new millennium, two distinct religious visions for society and human sexuality had taken root— Unraveling Any Hope of Consensus. Here is my conversation with Mary Griffith. Now let me introduce you to the author, Marie Griffith. Hello, Marie. Hi, Lillian. Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You, you paint, your book paints a portrait of 20th century America, where there was a fundamental and unprecedented split among American Christians in regard to sexuality. But let's start, before we get into the book, let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Moral Combat.
1: Oh, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It's a, a great chance for me to get to talk about these things. Um. Yeah, well, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, originally, and grew up Southern Baptist, and i guess i've always been interested in religion um my mother was a feminist and so i've always been interested in religion and gender and how those things sort of combine southern baptist and feminism in uh, in her case and uh you know I, I guess throughout much of my life i've just noticed that so many controversies over sex seemed to play themselves out in Christian communities, not always the ones that I was a part of, but, you know, just looking out there to the wider world. And so I was always interested in this question of why is the so-called religious right uh, seemingly obsessed with gender roles and uh, you know female submission to male authority, where they've been concerned about that, or you know, and and then actual um, sexuality and and practices of sex outside of marriage, same sex, uh, you know, stuff. So you know, I, I've been, this book in some ways has been in the making for a very very long time as I've sort of worked my way through those those questions.
0: Now you start with the uh, birth control movement with uh, Margaret Sanger. And the question that came to mind, I was reading that chapter was, uh, why did birth control become such a controversial topic? I know that Margaret Sanger wanted to change the cultural conversation, but before her, what was the cultural conversation? Did anybody talk about birth control?
1: Well, that's just it. I mean, birth control was sort of a a mostly forbidden topic. Um, Anthony Comstock had sort of made sure of this through the Comstock laws that prevented a lot of things from, from going through the mail service and being publicly discussed, including birth control. So you might in a doctor's office, if, if you had the right kind of doctor, a doctor might talk to you very carefully about birth control. Certainly there were methods that were available then but there was no public conversation about it at all and so really what started the controversy was margaret sanger and and a few others but she's you know kind of the best known who began saying this needs attention this needs public attention we need to reach the people with this with this message i was
0: wondering when i was reading it how many people actually i know you don't talk about this but maybe you found it in your research how how many people actually use birth control on a regular basis? In terms of percentage, is it was it mostly a middle class or upper middle class or educated population? Yeah, that's a great question
1: because, uh, and and this is not a history that I've done myself, but just reading the broader literature in this, I think the the sort of sense is that a lot of women from all social classes, uh, you sort of passed along knowledge of you know how to prevent pregnancy. So you know, I think various methods that would seem very primitive to us today were commonly used. Uh, You know, illegal abortions, of course, were not that uncommon. Um, And, you know, there was always the, you you know, the man stopping before ejaculating to to prevent pregnancy, right? So, you know, I I think there were all kinds of ways that people would find to prevent um, having a pregnancy. Um, But, you know, again, a lot of this didn't work, of course. Many methods weren't very effective at all.
0: Now, Martin was able to work a wedge between Catholics and Protestants regarding birth control. And she kind of used anti, it seems like she used anti-Catholic arguments to persuade uh, Protestants to her cause. What was going on there? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, you know, that was still a period of very strong anti-Catholicism, uh, particularly in sort of affluent white Protestant circles. Catholics were, you know, largely seen as immigrants and, you know, dirty people coming over from Italy and, you know, various Catholic countries. So there, there was a lot of very strong and, and really quite open anti-Catholicism at that time. Um, but really, Margaret Sanger, I would say, didn't exactly start the quarrel the with the church. Um, In some ways, the church started the quarrel with her by uh, preventing her or attempting to prevent her from speaking publicly uh, about birth control. I I tell the story in the book about a 1921 conference that she organized in New York, and she was supposed to be the culminating speaker. And when she got to the lecture hall, the, the, the doors had been locked against her, and the police eventually arrested her when she tried to speak anyway. And it later turned out that the the um, local Catholic Archbishop of, of New York, Patrick Hayes, had had somehow, so, or he or someone in his office, had played a role in that. And boy, then she just milked that for kind of public sympathy very effectively. And the newspapers were outraged that that she had been prevented from speaking. And it it really did at that point she very successfully sort of corralled. Uh, American anti-Catholicism, you know, uh, for her cause.
0: Now, what was the position at this point uh, between uh, the difference between the Catholics and the Protestants in response to birth control? Where it, it, it seems to me like you're saying that the Protestants were, were more open to considering yeah. this uh, besides just, you know, believing sort of she needs to have the right to speak because, you know, we have a right for speech here in America. It was more than that.
1: That's right. I mean, my sense is that the, the church, the, the Protestant churches, weren't speaking on birth control at all. Um, you know, there, there certainly wasn't a strong sense of this as a terrible thing and in some theological way. I'm sure there were many ministers, you know, who frowned upon it or whatever. But just judging by birth rates and other things, you know, it, it, clearly birth control wasn't really a big issue uh, among Protestants. Uh, if, among Catholics, of course, the very strong assumption was, um, you know, opposition, to birth control, um, but uh, you know it, it really took Sanger in this public conversation almost to force different religious groups to take a stand um, and and not stand by silently uh, as this controversy took
0: place. So it's one of those things that uh, re- uh, Protestant bodies didn't talk about. They kind of knew was going on, but nobody really addressed it, and it was sort of kind of a secret even in the churches.
1: Yeah, I I would say that's true. And if there was a dominant view, it was probably an opposition to birth control. I mean, just as sort of a, as a general kind of principle. But it it strikes me that it it was very rarely, certainly it was very rarely talked about publicly uh, in Protestant circles.
0: Okay, we go from birth control, which just seems like a very personal, private issue, to a very broad, a much broader issue in terms of censorship. Because, you know, her speaking out and talking very publicly about birth control raised concerns about did the government could the government censor people's speech about sexuality and those kinds of things? So, what was a How did how did the, how did the, the uh, this feed sort of this opposition to censorship? But at the same time, you know, uh, there's a lot of things happening. Literature and new movies are coming out now, and you've got mass culture, uh, more dissemination of uh, sexual topics. Uh, so, how how would you describe? Uh, the government's attitude towards this uh, censoring these kinds of things, and how the uh, industry, you know, uh, particularly the movie industry, began to move to self censorship as a replacement for government censorship.
1: Yeah, nope, that's, that's absolutely right. Well, so, you know, the, the 1920s and 1930s, as you say, um, saw somewhat more open discussion uh, of sex and um, sort of its presence in various modes of entertainment um, became somewhat more prominent. And, uh, you know, before it was really regulated, there were there were some pretty risque things that, you know, ho- were coming out in Hollywood movies and that sort of thing, risque by their state standards, uh, maybe not so much by by ours now. And uh, so again, it was really, really, it wasn't the government initially that that stepped in quite so much as, you know, religious people themselves who didn't want their children uh, to see such things. They didn't want their children reading certain types of books or literature. Uh, So a number of organizations were really focused quite heavily on on censorship. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is known for its anti-alcohol. Uh, stance, was also very focused on censorship um, at that time. And then a couple of very important Catholic organizations uh, were created that really focused on both literature and, uh, and the movies. And, um, you know, even the Hollywood, the early Hollywood kind of screening system and rating system for movies was very much influenced by some Catholic players who played a, a very important role there and worked with movies. Be producers and all to keep certain themes out of the movies and, and try to, to keep them pure.
0: Now, one of the people in the second chapter that you talk about censorship, you talk about D.H. Lawrence, which you make him sort of a, a central figure because of his literature. Can you talk about um, why he chose him? What is interesting about Lawrence that kind of feeds all this debate?
1: Well, Lawrence is just so interesting because he was censored over and over and over again, and he just fought it. Uh, he fought it, and he wrote about it, and he spoke about it. You know, just endlessly. And because he was considered by some people a great writer, you know one of the one of the great writers of his time, um, you know, these issues got an awful lot of attention. So the the issue, the sort of moment I focus on with him um, is when he publishes uh, Lady Chatterley's. Lover or tries to publish Lady Chatterley's Lover, kind of gets some some, uh, expurgated uh, versions uh, out there at least. And um, immediately, you know, it's it's forbidden. And uh, I tell a story about a bookseller in Cambridge, Massachusetts, being tricked into selling a copy of the book to someone who turned out to be an undercover uh, censor, member of a censorship organization, and a trial resulted in prison terms and all that. So, you know, and then since of course, of of Lawrence went on and on and on, but. You know the the themes of his novels. If anyone's you know still reading his novels, uh, there's a lot of sex in in the novels. Um, but he always wanted to say, "Look, this is not pornography. I'm not writing about sex in order to titillate people. Um, I'm writing about its beauty." And Victorian, uh, you know, Victorians have just killed the notion of the beauty of the human body and the beauty of sexual love and this uniting between people. So he really felt like he was sort of rescuing the holiness of sex. He really saw it in, in very religious terms, too.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting that he did see it that way. It, and it seemed like a after him, some uh, theologians came after him who kind of said, "Yes, you know, sexuality is not a dirty thing. The, you know, it's, there's there's a sacredness to sexuality." And he sort of kind of opened the way of people thinking about sexuality in a very different way—not just as something about the body, but spiritual, kind of religious. He was—he it was not Protestant religion; it was not Christian religion. But he did have a seem to have a, a, a religious impulse in his view of uh, sexuality.
1: Oh, yeah. No, very much so. And and even on into the 1960s and 1970s, the sort of liberal theologians, many liberal theologians of the time, just revered Lawrence for, you know, uh, sort of recognizing and, and celebrating the sacredness of sex. Now,
0: we've talked, it's a film industry. Uh, we have uh, Will Hayes in the Hayes Code. Uh, can you explain to the audience what the Hayes Code was? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, the Hays Code was just an attempt to, um, you know, it's one of these attempts, again, to sort of clean up the movies and prevent certain kinds of things from being uh, a subject of movies or being shown. So, you know, what uh, women could wear, you know, sort of part of the Hays Code, the themes that were not allowed, so they didn't want anything like adultery as a theme in a movie unless it just was absolutely essential to the plot, and, and it couldn't be, you know, sort of celebrated in any way. It had to be uh, frowned on. Um, interracial relationships uh, were forbidden by the Hayes Code and, you know, any number of other things. It was very lengthy, <laughs> actually.
0: What was really interesting is that when, once you have mass entertainment and you're dealing with issues of sex, all of a sudden you got the issues of race get wedded to the issues of, of race, <laughs> uh, like it's always been, but all of a sudden it shows up on the movie. It shows up in the movies. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about... Um, uh, the next thing I wanted, it was Ruth Benedict. And I didn't realize that her, uh, her work on culture had led to her work on race. And how did she challenge, who was she, and how did she challenge so-called American sexual values?
1: So Ruth Benedict uh, was an anthropologist at Columbia University, and, and she had became famous when she published a, a, a book called The Patterns of Culture. And um, I start writing about her in about 1941 during World War II. She actually uh, did a, a bunch of work for the federal government um, on sort of race and, and racial issues. And one of the things that she uh, did was author a pamphlet called The Races of Mankind, um, that essentially argued that race is a construction. It's a human construction. There's really no such thing as a race or as different races. We are all mixes of something, you know, if you call it a race. And uh, and therefore, there was really no problem with uh, loving people and uh, and marrying and reproducing across the so-called color line. Uh, the pamphlet was produced and, and distributed actually to the armed forces because um, members of the the sort of armed forces uh, service committee wanted to um, uh, reduce racism even in the in the army, they wanted to help white men who were fighting alongside Filipinos and in, in some cases and and help them think differently about you know the the terrible Nazi ideology and the dangers of kind of you know racial science, um, but it really backfired and a huge controversy erupted um, from some senators and congressmen in the Jim Crow South who, you know, were scandalized by the the kind of interracial dimension of her work.
0: Well, it seemed like uh, communism and race mixing kind of got together there. (laughs) Anti-communism. What was it It like? It was a communist plot or what was the idea there?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was accused of being a communist and others who who had those ideas. Uh, and this was before the McCarthy hearings, of course. This is still, you know, early to mid uh, 1940s. Um, the idea was communists are infiltrating America in ways we can't even see. They're here and they're among us and we don't even know who they are. But one of the things that they, uh, one of their weapons, if you will, is trying to, you know, kind of mess with the morality of America. And get them to lead these sort of debauched lives and and more focused on uh, their erotic life than 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 on other things. They'll sort of suck them in and and distract them uh, from political work. So, yes, she was seen as being part of this kind of, you know, almost communistic plot to uh, destroy America
0: now the 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 highlight of your book maybe not the highlight but the the turning point it seems to me was the, the chapter where you talk about Alfred Kinsey in his work on uh, the sexual response and, and sexual habits of Americans it seems to be that I think it was in 1953 when his book on the female sexuality came out um, correct me if I'm wrong but it, it seems like he was a turning point uh, of and, and I don't know why it felt that way to me, but it, it did seem that way. Can you talk about about Kinsey and why he was so pivotal in this whole thing, and what did he have to do with religion?
1: Right. Well, yes. Uh, so Kinsey really did these two studies. He did 1948, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, and 1953, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, became bestsellers. I mean, they were everywhere, and uh, every American magazine, American newspaper, uh, gave enormous coverage to these books when they came out. They they were just, and and that's the reason that this becomes you know such a such a turn point, because nobody could ignore him. You know, in the past, certain figures might seem kind of marginal, or you could just ignore them. At least the mainstream media wasn't necessarily celebrating them um, in this way. But here, the mainstream media, you know, just loved uh, writing about Kinsey and and did it a lot. Um, And so really, what, what happened, it sort of spawned a very divided reaction among American Christians. Conservative Protestants, and Catholic leaders denounced Kinsey uh, as immoral. They, they felt that he was, um, you know, writing about sex in such a way that was that was degrading to the morals of America. It insulted American women to suggest that at least half of them weren't actually virgins when they married, you know, they, these kind of scandalous claims of the book. So they denounced him over and over and over uh, again, uh, quite loudly. And then the, the interesting thing about this is, though, you also had a liberal Protestant and and to some degree, liberal Jewish response that was much more positive uh, towards Kinsey. That felt like there were actually pastoral applications to his work. That if we can simply learn from Kinsey, learn how people are really living, what they're struggling with, same sex desire, you know, especially was was one of the big ones. We can actually help our parishioners. So that's the moment when you know, as much as any that you see a deep divide among American Protestants. You know, that's. That's just really stark. um, And and this larger divide that that, of course, is is growing into our culture wars at at that point.
0: Now, it seems like he was he was gardening. He was looking for religious leaders to support his work. Uh, Why is that? Um, why was he looking for? Yes, w- yeah, religion? why? Because he's a scientist. I mean, he's trying to act. He's working as a scientist and he'd gotten so much opposition, but he's at the same time really trying to uh, continue to dialogue with religious leaders.
1: Right. Well, you know, it was a pious moment in American history, <laughs> you know, and I think he was savvy and knew that his work was going to have a far greater impact if, you know, some of the clergy and, and uh, you know, theological leaders, um, you know, were actually uh, on his side. But but actually, I say that, But and that's true. But on the other hand, a lot of clergy just reached out to him first. You know, I spent a long time, I visited the Kinsey uh, archive. At Indiana University, a number of times, and spent a lot of time in his uh, looking at the correspondence in his archive. And I mean, it's clear clergy from all over the country, from cities, from tiny little towns, all in every, every state practically, wrote to him first and said, thank you for writing this study. I, I'm really taken by this. I, I realize that my parishioners are struggling with things. And, and thank you for, for making this uh, easier for me to understand. And he was a crazy correspondent himself. He wrote back to all of these folks, you know, and so he sort of developed relationships. But in many ways, they came to him first, an awful lot of them did.
0: The issue of this also gets into now into the issue of sex education or education of, about sex to, in public schools, and you talk about this. Mary is Steichen Calderon is that her name? Yeah, uh, Steichen. Yep. Yeah, I've never heard of her, um, and so I was. Tell tell us about her, and what was was she a liberal or was she a conservative in regard to sexuality, and how does how does she promote sex education? But she seemed to have some conservative views and some liberal views.
1: I, that's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah, Mary Steichen Calderone. she was actually the daughter of the photographer Edward Steichen. So she sort of grew up in this sort of elite uh, kind of um, intellectual world. Um, but as, a, as an adult, she was a physician. She worked for a time for Planned Parenthood um, as its medical director, first woman to, to serve as the medical director of Planned Parenthood. And then she left Planned Parenthood to start the uh, Sex Information and Education Council of the U.S., or Seek Us, which is an organization that's still very active uh, even today. And it was an organization that really wanted to support organizations that wanted to put together sex education programs. You know, the state of sex education in the public schools and really everywhere, she thought was just a disgrace. And young people weren't learning the right things from their parents or from their congregations, and certainly not from their schools. But an awful lot of uh, folks at that time were really really wanted to improve sex ed, um, you know, for their, for, for whatever uh, organization they were a part of. And Secus was really there to help them do that.
0: Okay. So she, this is, this is going to be huge because of course you're talking about parents and their children. (laughs) And, uh, once you start messing with somebody's child, uh, people get really upset. So you've got, uh, you got Billy James Hargis who is Really, opposed not only to sex education, but he is opposed to a lot of other things that have to that revolve around sex. What was his influence, and what was his message?
1: Sure. So Billy James Hargis is a fascinating figure. He was a fundamentalist, anti-communist uh, preacher uh, from Oklahoma originally, and um, he, uh, yes, he, he he was known for a lot of things. He did a lot of anti-communist activism and all in the 1950s. But um, eventually, he discovered Mary Steig and Calderone and Sikis and was outraged by this, you know, what he saw as promotion of immorality. And he spent all kinds of time and energy and ink um, denouncing her and this organization in no uncertain terms and really inspired, uh, you know, a sort of counter movement uh, to her in, in all kinds of ways. So, and, and, he, and he had many allies in that, the John Birch Society and and, and various organizations organizations, you know, really went after her. Uh, quite viciously uh, to be honest um, and and you know so they would go to, to towns where this was becoming a, a topic and a controversy and they would go to churches and speak to people and and really sort of help develop local movements to oppose sex education uh, in the public schools and uh, you know I looked at her correspondence files too and uh, she got some vicious letters I reprint a couple of them in the book and um, it was quite astonishing so yes the work she did could not have been more controversial at that time and, of course, remain controversial for long after.
0: Well, the, the whole thing about sex education, what I was wondering about is, what was the content of her sex education? I can't imagine that it was very uh, radical or outrageous, as we would think of it today, but nothing's outrageous anymore. So <laughs> I'm just kind of wondering what the content was.
1: Right. Well, and again, she was always quick to say, "I'm not developing the curriculum. I want, pl- but I want to help school systems that want to develop curriculum, and then we'll work on that together." Um, but she was very medically focused, so she wanted their, you know, diagrams, and um, she wanted the proper words of genitals to be spoken and to not be sort of forbidden. You know, she was really very matter of fact, and of course, there was nothing that she really wanted to talk about um, in terms of morality. Uh, you, did, you mentioned earlier, you asked me about her being somewhat conservative and somewhat liberal in different ways. And you know, one of the more conservative ways, I guess, is she was very much a proponent of monogamous uh, lifelong marriage. Um, she had difficulty with homosexuality. She, she evolved somewhat on that in her lifetime, but she, you know, always kind of found that bewildering and, and problematic. And she did not like the kind of hedonism that she saw around her in the 1960s and so-called promiscuity, you know, as she called it. So in some ways, she was also advocating for a very traditional kind of, um, you know, model of sexual relationship. And and I think uh, the programs probably reflected that quite a bit.
0: Okay, so we've got. Uh, I mean, it, it seems like the issues are getting more complex as we go along, <laughs> because in the book it just gets more complicated. Now we're, you know, you're talking about abortion, and we know how complicated that is. So, and, and the, the history of abortion in America is complicated just in of itself because it was it was not legal, it was not uh, regulated, and then it was illegal, and then it became. I mean, it was. It's not all. One straight line, you know, it was always illegal. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the history of abortion, like in the 19th century? And uh, and then it was in certain states it was banned. And, and and when you could have an abortion? And what were the positions of doctors on this yeah, sure.
1: Well, so, so abortion is as old as pregnancy, probably, you know, attempts to, to get rid of a pregnancy uh, go way, way back. And midwives and folk healers and all kinds of folks have always had, you know, some kind of different ways of helping women um, uh, terminate a pregnancy. Um, it really didn't get uh, regulated and made illegal until the middle to the late uh, decades of the uh, 19th century. And that really was around physicians. Who were sort of trying to, you know, establish their own medical authority over midwives and and over folk healers and and others, um, so and and that wasn't a difficult fight. So so abortion gets pretty much made illegal in most circumstances. Each state kind of regulated it slightly differently. So uh, I think all states made some provision for the life of the mother, you know, um, you know, that that it was acceptable in those cases. And then different states had maybe other exceptions as well. So there was a lot of variety in that. Um, But over the course of the 20th century, especially starting in the 50s, um, you know, a number of physicians and other and and social workers, frankly, became very concerned. because they were seeing so many women uh, still getting illegal abortions, and of course, you know, oftentimes becoming very, very sick, or destroying uh, their their own future fertility, or even dying from illegal abortion. So a movement really emerged among professionals to say, we we've got to do a better job. This needs to be, you know, more medically accessible uh, in more cases to prevent, you know, this this kind of situation. And and Americans themselves. Uh, Especially during the 1960s, really uh, held a, a view very similar to that and, and wanted there to be greater access to abortion, at least in certain circumstances. So by 1972, I think it was, um, Gallup does a poll, and, the, and a, the majority, the clear majority of Americans, including a majority of Catholics, by the way, favored some degree of abortion reform. So in 1973, when Roe v. Wade comes down and sort of really suddenly makes abortion legal in all kinds of, you know, circumstances for the first and second trimester. um, You know, the the country that most Americans had been ready for some kind of abortion legalization. Now, that went farther than a lot of people thought uh, it should go, of course. And from there, a very, very vigorous anti-abortion movement arose, as we know.
0: Now, so, but what happened quickly was that uh, abortion was not just about the fetus, the life of the fetus, or when human life begins. It really became an issue about women and the feminist movement that was in, you know, pro-family and what this was doing to uh, sexuality. There was, it was a bunch of issues all around uh, abortion that was beyond, you know, affirming the life of a fetus.
1: That's right. And that's one of the points that I really want to make in the book. Uh, you know, I'm well aware that for many people who have strong anti-abortion views, this is about life and death. I completely understand that, that that for many people, they see this as as murder. And, um, you know, th- there's that. But in addition to that, there have always been, I think, these other sorts of, of you know, ideas bound up in it and, and a kind of hatred of feminism among many of these same folks. Um, it, it typically, uh, a strong anti-abortion sentiment has typically gone along with anti-LGBT uh, sentiment. In other words, a sort of range of attitudes towards sex and gender and a, a range of conservative attitudes around sex and gender and even gender hierarchy and all have tended to go along with that pro-life position. So it, it, yeah, in that chapter of the book, I'm trying to kind of unpack all of that. Yeah, and it seems like uh, the language the was very much debate. part of
0: this. The- the language of how each group talked about the other group, like pro-choice, pro-life, anti-choice, anti-life. you know, it was like pro abortion. It was all this vocabulary uh, that was thrown at each other to kind of recast the other party in an unfavorable light.
1: Well, I think that's right. And, you know, to me, the the abortion debate has been a tragedy in all sorts of ways, no matter what side you're on or, or what you think about it. Um, and, and partly, you know, this inability or unwillingness to sort of see the moral values that are animating, you know, the other side, uh, whatever side you stand on. So yeah, the, the kind of weapons of, um, you know, calling the other side names and, and making assumptions about who they are, you know, has, has really been part of this uh, making it just an impossible debate, you know, where compromise uh, feels almost impossible. So that, that really, that was not the case in 1973. It didn't have that, you know, that polarization really developed over time um, sometime after that.
0: Now, we, we know kind of in the history of, of the Christian right that Roe v. Wade was a very big galvanizing decision by the Supreme Court and that it really was a very much a driving force to get Christians to get politically involved. But how, But we don't hear that much about the pro-choice clergy, Okay, and their role. In particular, you talked about Howard Moody. So let's talk about him in his uh, clergy consultation services and what the pro choice clergy was doing.
1: Well, so Howard Moody was a minister, originally a Southern Baptist from Dallas, and uh, he he was based uh, at this point in the late 60s in uh, New York City at Judson Memorial Church down in Greenwich Village. And he also uh, did a lot of work with the poor and really saw, again, a lot of women in dire straits uh, with um, unwanted pregnancies, pregnancies they couldn't afford, pregnancies that had resulted from rape or, or from a, a, a husband uh, that, that was leaving them or was abusive or something like that. And so he joined with a number of other clergies to uh, provide um, an abortion referral service that started in the early 1970s prior to Roe v. Wade. And, you know, that was really an attempt to find providers who could provide safe abortions. And, um, you know, of course, essentially they were breaking the law uh, by by doing this. But uh, the law kind of let them go uh, on the the most part. And they worked with all kinds of women. Um, They really saw it as a justice issue, as an issue of standing with the women the way that G Jesus would stand, you know, with the poor. And uh, so they very much saw this as a Christian um, mission, Uh, you know, and I I take them at their word in that. I mean, it was very much part of a a Christian vision of justice and standing with the poor.
0: So how did, uh, there's another thing it went into, Howard Moody went into this attempt to alleviate basically the stigma that was around prostitution. Yeah,
1: so he also, yeah, his prior work had been with um, prostitutes in and around New York City absolutely and he just felt like you know here are the pariahs of of you know our society who are suffering and are in need of you know assistance and they're not only suffering they're human beings you know and he developed friendships and and you know uh, with with these women and really yes tried to have a whole different attitude toward prostitution than than pretty much the rest of American society
0: now this is happening he he's a Protestant so but there's the other side which is I think I'll really interesting story about Catholics and how that movement began, the Catholics for Choice, and uh, that was a much more difficult trail to forge for them because of the church was very, very strong.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and this was a movement sort of spearheaded by Francis Kissling, uh, who's, who's very much, uh, still alive and, and active today. Um, and, and she wasn't by any means the, the only one, but she sort of helped, um, uh, became the leader of this organization that was called Catholics for a free choice early on and then Catholics for choice. And, you know, her, her argument was, look, the Catholic church, there's not just one Catholic position on abortion. Um, um, there is also a Catholic position that sees standing with women and standing with the poor as a as a religious vocation, and that does not believe that abortion is murder, uh, flat out, period. And so, you know, she and a number of other people, men and women alike, really worked amongst other Catholics, um, you know, on that. And, and sometimes they worked in abortion clinics, uh, they did some political work, they uh, worked with Geraldine Ferraro when she was the uh, vice presidential candidate um, in 1988 and and sort of supported her as a, she was the first Catholic to, uh, you know, really go public as a pro-choice Catholic. So, you know, they did a a lot of good work uh, like that, that was sort of, um, you know, intended very much to be, you know, driven by Catholic uh, values, but interpreted differently uh, than the church did.
0: Okay, now the... uh the, ab- the abortion issue was a, an issue that uh, was really hot and it seemed to kind of cool down and sometimes it just keeps coming back. But uh, I'm wondering about, um, now that we're going to go into sexual harassment, I'm wondering how the current situation in sexual harassment, uh, all we hear on the news, uh, is really sort of a replay of what you talk about in the 1990s. Mhm mhm oh ha- how today's stories are sort of a... hearing and Paula Jones and Bill Clinton it seems like at that time the way you describe it that the you know feminists and women were very uh like we got to stop this we're going to do something about it there was a rally of we got to stop sexual harassment but it seemed like nothing much happened and now we've got dealing with it again
1: well, you know, that that's kind of the story of sexual harassment in some ways, is that it, it sort of emerges in, into public view when a particular case catches the eye of the media and the American people. And, you know, there's a lot of outrage and, and a lot of activism and you know, after the Anita Hill uh, accusations against Clarence Thomas, the number of charges of sexual harassment, I mean, women women became emboldened uh, for some time to sort of make these charges public and, and, you know, get the law involved and that kind of thing and, and really correct this. Um, and, you know, the Paula Jones case also, you know, people against Bill Clinton, people uh, talked about sexual harassment. It was now the conservatives were talking about it, which they didn't uh, during Anita Hill's uh, sort of Moment, so you know, but but then yes, the sort of public outrage dies out, and and you know we've seen nothing like that until the recent uh, sort of charges and the Me Too movement that kind of began when Harvey Weinstein and and some of these uh, big famous guys were were outed, and and of course that movement is still very much alive
0: now. And of course, you know, I think it happened back in the nineties because I remember uh, people say this is going too far. <laughs> you know, these charges of sexual harassment is going too far. So now we've got the same, we've got another you know, oppositional movement saying women are going too far with this me too. You know, we're we're taking uh, you know, good men and we make we, we're running their careers and character through the mud and now they, you know, this destroys their careers. It seems like it's just a rerun and uh it's rather disturbing. <laughs> we we know we know as historians that uh, history's not supposed to repeat itself but it sure does rhyme.
1: <laughs> it does. It does.
0: Yeah, that's right. So um now you know we we come to today which is really what you end up talking about the sex uh, same sex marriage which you know if we thought abortion was you In know controversial boy this one this, this is the end of civilization, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so Let's talk about the attitude, Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize, a lot of people think that it was gay people who decided that they were going to pursue same-sex marriage because this was the way to legitimize their lifestyle, but you show that there were many gay people who were not interested in this issue. How did it become an issue that was, yeah, that it was popular or became accepted Across the board yeah and
1: and this is a complicated story that there are new new books devoted to this that I think people can get a far deeper history you know of that question, uh, yeah, on the one hand, there have always been uh gay couples who sort of wanted to get married. And, and you know, I document some of those, you know, throughout the 20th century, even before that, and um, have wanted this. But, you know, this was never a big issue, a sort of mobilizing issue at all. And, and I think a lot of folks in that community would say, well, we were just trying to, you know, fight for our lives. We were just trying to stay alive and uh, not be killed, you know, or not be uh, thrown in jail or, you know, have another Stonewall uh, riot with the police. After us, so you know there were bigger priorities. In other words, for a very long time, but you know the issue of marriage, I, I think, was very much seen as a civil rights issue, and a number of legal thinkers, you know, coming coming out of law schools and other sorts of things, really looked deeply at the law, and I think began to see that you know an argument was possible that could could really work, you know, at, at this level and and make. Um, um, you know all people ha- be able to have this equal right to get married and and that has financial implications for people it has tax implications it has implications for what happens when one person dies and who inherits what you know and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, it was a movement long in the making. And, it, you know, it was never embraced by everyone or it was never enthusiastically embraced by everyone. A lot of people thought that it had this normalizing tendency and just gonna make gay people look like straight people and that it was really dull, uh, you know, and boring. But I think all would say, you know, even, even if so, you know, there is a need for equal civil rights.
0: And also it was interesting, you know, there's a lot of feminists who are against marriage altogether and they just thought, I mean, marriage, why? Uh, and what's interesting, too, this is at the same time, the marriages, uh, heterosexual marriages are falling apart. So it's like, why marriage is falling apart? Other people are just, you know, trying to get out of marriage. Other people are trying to get in. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's right, right.
1: Oh, yeah. And and there were a lot of feminists and others and lesbian activists who just rolled their eyes in the 70s at the idea that, you know, marriage was something to fight for. So it really didn't gain momentum until a good bit after that. I, I write about it more, you know, really in the early uh, 21st century. I mean, that wasn't the beginning of this movement, but that's where it really heats up, uh, you know, all over the country.
0: So uh, the there was also some intermediate approaches to same-sex relationships, short of, uh, state recognized marriage uh there were some religious attempts to kind of provide some sort of intermediate uh communal affirmation. That's right. Can you talk about that?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I tell uh, a bunch of stories of clergy who, you know, kind of with their their couples who, who wanted, you know, who were very religious and who sort of wanted to have a union that would be blessed by their religious community and that would be somehow recognized in the eyes of God. So, you know, there are a number of ceremonies like that that I documented, and I'm sure far more than, than, than I did, um, you know, of really... Different sorts of ritual ceremonies that would take place in religious settings, um, as as part of a blessing, the community would give to the couple. So those things were happening long before you know marriage was actually uh,
0: legal. Well, you know, I remember when I was uh, reading the, I read the court decision that uh, sex relation, uh, marriage uh, was approved by the Supreme Court, and it seemed like the 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 pro, the decision, the positive decision for it really talked about marriage in sort of a transcendent sort of, you can't really find fulfillment as a human being unless you're married. It just, I thought that the language of the court in that decision was way overblown, particularly since since marriages are falling apart all the time. We have divorced parents, single parents, uh, lots of lots of studies saying that single people are even happier than married people. You know? it's, so it's, it seems like at the same time that reality seems to say that marriage is not enduring as a cultural institution. You've got the court making this very uh, a romantic, uh, romantic picture that uh, allows for same sex marriage, which which is kind of, I think it's kind of an interesting um It's ironic there's a disconnect there between what's going on with the culture and the law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh well, yeah. Tell me what you, what are you thinking about this? Oh
1: yeah. Well, you're not alone in your skepticism, uh, you know, about that. But you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, just kind of said, "Well, we'll take it." You know, that's not exactly how we see marriage as this transcendent institution, but w- we'll take it. You know, marriage marriage is really there's really two things we're talking about. When we're talking about marriage. We're talking about the civil institution, and then we're talking about the sort of religious, you know, side of it. And those often have been conflated because a lot of people, most people, still, I guess, get get married in congregations, or you know, an awful lot of people do. So you think of it as just one simple thing when it's really you're you're kind of you've kind of got two different things going on. Um, but you know, I, I think that, in a, in a, it's ironic maybe, but that way of seeing marriage as being so sacred that everyone should have access to it, you know, that had power in some circles. I think that was very effective, you know, in in sort of persuading. Um, some unlikely people to become uh, supporters of same-sex marriage. So, you know, even if people roll their eyes uh, at at some of that, um, you know, it it seems to have had uh, some value
0: in changing attitudes and and then changing, you know, the law. There probably was a rush of a same-sex couples rushing to get married right away. But, you know, I kind of wonder where the statistics are now, whether, you know, they're just more like heterosexual couples, a lot of cohabitation, you know, divorce and everything else. So it's kind of interesting. Okay. So let me ask you, I want to have kind of a final question for you. So how do you, all these debates about sex education, abortion, uh, contraception, same-sex partnerships, I mean, censorship, Huge, huge issues that have to do with sexuality and how we're going to order our society and uh, particularly the position of women and all these issues create uh, this huge, you know, breach you talk about between uh, and within Christianity, which had never really been seen before like this. The Christians had divided upon other things. Well, they, they divided on uh, abolition, slavery. Uh, but this was really close to home. It was really personal. And um, I was just wondering, is there any way, do you think, uh, to heal this breach, or now we've got did you don't talk about this, but now we've got transgender rights, okay? And the debate about that, in terms of what is a man and what is a woman, and are they just God made two genders and or now that you know we can have four or five? And so, can this breach ever be healed? Or are we just irreconcilably sort of split? as you know, the Christian community split on this.
1: Yeah. So, so just to go back, you're right. You know, there was a consensus at one point in time among most Americans of all kinds. You know, if you look at the late, the very end of the 19th century, early 20th century, that marriage was monogamous, heterosexual, meant for life. There was gender hierarchy, men are the head, women, you know, answer to the men and raise the children. I mean, the, these kinds of things weren't liberal or conservative by their standards. That was just, you know, reality. That's how they saw it. They, they saw it as a God-ordained institution. Um, and so then skip ahead and into our own time. And uh, yes, there are still folks who believe that, but, you know, it's completely split. Um, and, you know, to the folks who don't believe any of that now, you know, that all of those kinds of assumptions about marriage and gender and sexuality have really gone by the wayside. Um, you know, can our, can our can the breach be fixed? It's hard for me to see uh, at this moment in time an end to what I see as sort of the the patriarchy that is still driving some of this on on the one side. Um, I don't see, you know, uh, certain church communities budging on their position on women, for instance, women in ministry or, you know, kind of the, the, the notion about God created two genders And this is how it is, and this is how it will always be. You know, I don't see that changing doctrinally, uh, you know, anytime soon at all. So what I think you have to hope for is our better ways of communicating across these gaps of really communicating the moral values that are are animating your own beliefs and, and accepting the moral values that are on the other side and somehow being willing in the law, in the legal sense, to find some way to manage these and compromise where you can compromise in order to live together. I mean, it, it, our, our society... Society is so polarized now. It's a terrible problem. It's one of the it's the biggest problem I think that that we have, and um, so somehow finding ways of living together. With people that you know, we we might believe very, very different things about you know. It's it's an urgent task, um, and I am hopeful about that. I'm hopeful when I see the younger generations, and they have a passion to do that. Um, so I don't know if I think that everybody's going to somehow agree on transgender issues, or that everyone's suddenly going to become a, a feminist and on on gender issues. But I do think we'll find ways to live better together.
0: And you know what happens, Marie is. You can't live in a silo everyone no matter what their position is going to run into this into their own families with their neighbors with their friends they're going to run into one of these issues or more of these issues that they have to deal with on a personal level so you know you can have theoretically a position but when you really deal with it personally you, you think oh my goodness This is real. You know, my son or my daughter is is gay or my daughter got an abortion without telling me. You know, you have to make decisions in in real life. So anyway, thank you, Marie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun talking to you, Lillian. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society of U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.